morning, church family. My name is Albert, and we're going to read two passages this morning. The first is from Jeremiah 31, and we'll be reading um, from verses 31 to 34, and you'll find it on page 1130 in the Pew Bibles. So Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. I will not be, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. <clears throat> and now we turn to Romans 7, and we find <coughs> Romans 7 on page 1608 in the Pew Bibles, and we'll be reading from verse 7. So Romans 7, verse 7, and we'll read to verse 25, the first part. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin may become utterly sinful. You know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the Lord the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. 
For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. G'day again everyone, it'd be great to keep a Bible open at Romans chapter 7. How about I pray and we'll start thinking about the last commandment. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we do thank you that you give us your word and we pray this morning for your spirit's help to understand the 10th commandment, to think about what it does. Uh, we pray also for your Holy Spirit to help us respond rightly to your word. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our dad is walking down the street with his two sons. He had two little boys and both of them are crying like their world is falling apart. A very helpful passerby says, kids, eh? Uh, what's their major malfunction? And the dad says, oh, look, the trouble with these two is what's wrong with the world. One has a lolly and the other wants it. That's the problem. No one's been murdered yet, um, no one's stolen the lolly, no one's committed adultery, no lies have been told, but this is the problem with the world, all the tears, the tantrums and the heartache. And he's saying it's all a matter of want, of desire, a little boy whose heart is set on his brother's lolly. And it's almost like the dad is saying... Hey, if we could sort out that, there'd be no more tears. We might fix what's wrong with the world. Now, I wonder if that's why we've got this commandment. At first blush, it feels almost like a bit of a strange way to finish the commandments. It seems redundant, a little bit intangible, like we've had very clear, concrete commands, haven't we? No other gods, no idols. Take God's name seriously when it comes to your words and actions. Keep the Sabbath, honour your parents. Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, no false testimony. You can get your head around that. And here comes the commandment up on the screen. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. And if you're like, what even is a covet? Uh, well, a helpful way of thinking about it is the word that Moses uses as the commandments restated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, desire. Desire. It's getting into much more murky territory, isn't it? From external behaviour and ways of relating to God and others 
and getting at internal motives. Behaviour to desire, motion to motive. I think there's three things this morning that God is getting at with this commandment when it comes to desires. First of all, our desires need to be in order. Our desires actually catch us out as lawbreakers, secondly. And thirdly and finally, the law is actually driving towards God reordering our desires, our hearts. Foreshadows something that, well, we saw a picture of before, something that God does in us. So firstly, the commandment says our desires need to be in order. And I think it's important to clarify that God's not anti-desire absolutely. That's a kind of Buddhist idea. I was reading a while back that there's four noble truths in Buddhism. Life is suffering. Second of all, suffering is caused by desire. Thirdly, nirvana is reached and suffering ended when we stop craving. And fourth, liberation therefore is found by freedom from craving. So you follow the eightfold path or something like that. But I think we can affirm it's good to desire food and clothing and a place to live. It's not wrong to want something nice or better. A book like Ecclesiastes kind of goes there. Desire is part of who we are as humans. We're not just brains on sticks, not just thinking things. We are souls with desires. The commandment's simply calling on you to order your desires rightly. So we could say that coveting is actually disordered desire. And when you look at the commandment again in Exodus 20 verse 17, it's desiring someone else's particular possessions or their relationships. You want them to be yours. I want her house. I want his wife. If I just had their thing, whatever that thing is, I would be happy. And I'd be happy if they missed out on it, actually. It's doing two things. Um, J.I. Packer says, coveting is the root of all social evil. Yes, I used this when we looked at stealing a few weeks back, but David and Bathsheba, think again about that. David desires Bathsheba. He steals her from Uriah, so he breaks the Eighth Commandment. He commits adultery with her, breaks the Seventh Commandment. He covers up her pregnancy by murdering Uriah, breaks the Sixth Commandment, and it all begins with desire, doesn't it? James puts it this way uh, in James 4 verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's the heart violating the second great commandment, as Jesus puts it, to love your neighbour as yourself. It's the heart hating your neighbour because they've got what you want. It's not just liking things in abstract. It's envying the happiness of others. It's resentment at others flourishing. It's desire that is prepared to do whatever it takes to deal with your discontent. It does that, but it also dishonours God. It's an expression, I think, of our dissatisfaction with him. And again, it's like what we touched on with stealing. There's a lot of closeness here. It's the heart saying that God is not enough. Not good. He's holding out on me. Now again, like I mentioned before, it feels like an odd way to end the Ten Commandments. We start with big, lofty commands like no other gods before me and the commandments seem to, to end with stop wanting that other bloke's donkey, which feels odd, but it's connected. It's God saying 
I am the only one you need. You don't need to turn to other gods, and for heaven's sake, don't turn to other blokes' donkeys to find satisfaction. Paul, in Colossians 3 verse 5, says, Coveting or greed is idolatry. Because it's abandoning the one true God for smaller created things, abandoning God for our desires, which we can't even turn into a God. Now, what I'm driving at with this, I guess, is that the end of the commandments is not a fizzer. It's not an afterthought. It's, it's not a nothing. It's getting you to feel that coveting is serious. It's the, it's the thing that is the root of what is, is miserable, relationally, the root of a lot of personal dissatisfaction and discontent. I think I need to say with this, look, we're, yeah, we are sinners in all of this, but we're also victims in it as well, if you're feeling the heaviness of it. Sin has affected us profoundly at the level of our heart's desires. It corrupts us. It corrupts our desires. And, and the world, the flesh and the devil lever off our desires. It is just so very hard to keep your desires in check. So I'm not having a go at you this morning. Not at all. I'm part of this as well. And maybe at our particular point in history, it's never been harder. I was reading uh, a while back, at the end of World War II, you had this thing called the military-industrial complex. Uh, there's a war and all of these factories are making tanks and bullets. There's a bigger workforce. There's women who've gotten jobs in paid employment for the first time ever while all the men are off fighting. The war finishes. Wonderful. But actually, hang on, this is a problem. What are they all going to do? What's going to keep the economy pumping so that we have always economic growth? Well, there was a Wall Street banker by the name of Paul Mazur of Lehman Brothers and he said way back then, we must shift from a needs to desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old things they've got have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desire must overshadow his needs. That is a deliberate disordering of your desires and we are trained in that for the last 80 years or so. We just know no different. It is so hard provoking the coveting in our hearts. It's horrifying. The commandment comes where it does because God's making it explicit here, really. Obedience is more than just good behaviour. It's driving at our desires, getting them in order. But that brings us to the second thing I said at the start. Our desires really do rat us out, if you like. The tenth commandment catches us out in, in terms of sin. And I've been driving this way, I know, but the disordered desires of the heart sit behind the breaking of so many of the other commandments, like we saw before. What's adultery? You could say, hey, it's driven by lust, but it's a desire for your neighbour's wife or husband. What's driving theft? A desire for something nice, sure, but it's something nice that's not yours. What drives lies? The desire for a good reputation? You can't get it by your good character alone, so you do some verbal window dressing of your life in front of others. Now, this commandment's coming last because, because God is saying obedience is more than just behaviour. It's coming last because it's like the canary in the coal mine, if you know what I mean. It says there's a problem. Now, that's what Paul is driving at in Romans 7, which, if you can flick there now, 
page 1608. We're not going to deal with everything in Romans 7, all of that doing bit. Yeah, I know you'd like a sermon on that, but not today. Um, No way. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. Now, the law is not the problem. The desires of my heart are. The law exposes the disordered desires. And so anyone who thinks they're good at the sheer level of behaviour management before God is going to fail. Uh, Paul, in his life as a Pharisee, he thought he could. You know, he says, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. You know, you could do like a tick and flick of commandments one to nine. I'm a monotheist. I've got no obvious graven idols. I don't profane God's name. I keep the Sabbath. I avoid having sex with somebody else's spouse. I haven't murdered anyone technically, but here comes the 10th commandment. Like, do you honestly think you can consistently direct your desires for the good of others, to just be happy when someone else succeeds? You know, when your neighbour rolls up the driveway in the very car you want. No one can direct their desires to delight in God and to find satisfaction and fulfilment in Him. In fact, when the law names coveting, the sinful nature, says Paul there in verse 9, the law of sin goes and does it more. The law, as good as it is, provokes a sinful desire to break it. We are just that messed up. Or as Paul would say in verse 24, what are we? Wretched. Our desires fail us and the command exposes them as sinful. That's what he's getting at kind of in the middle of Romans 7 there around verse 13. Now look, there's a lot there and look, it's not surprising But it is sobering, isn't it? And in terms of application, it really just does say, get real. But it also sets us free. It sets you free from kidding yourself about any self-righteousness. To any potential Pharisee in the room, it says, stop now. Do not think that you can post the Ten Commandments on the fridge and each morning stare at them, psych yourself up for a day of box ticking. And say, look, I've nailed it. No, the 10th commandment's going to come and nail you and me. Do not look at these commandments as a way to be right with God. It's just impossible. But the 10th commandment sets you free to say with Paul, yes, what a wretched man or woman I am. It fails you, but it sets you free to give up on your sort of sense of self-goodness and to turn to God and, as Paul does, to cry out, who will set me free, verse 24, from this body that is subject to death? Well, as Paul says, thanks be to Jesus who does. But how? Well, that brings us to the final thing. How does this mess of desire get sorted out in us? The answer is not to eliminate your desires, not for a second. The law is foreshadowing something deeper done in us. Especially as we've been thinking about obedience is not a matter of externals but of the heart. Any thoughtful person is probably going to read this and think, I need something done to my heart so that I can do this. The answer is reordered desires. The commandment's foreshadowing that God's going to do that. 
I mean, Israel's story after receiving the commandments is the story of a nation following their heart, and that is a mess. And that's what Jeremiah reflects on. So if you've got a Bible handy, you can open to page 1130. But Jeremiah says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel. After that time declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. A new covenant, a new binding agreement made by God that gets to the heart of the problem with the human heart. The law in their minds, written on their hearts. It can only be something that God's Spirit, who breathed the law out, is going to do in you. It's a new heart being promised. And it's one of the most beautiful promises in Scripture as well about our wretched law-breaking, about the sin that makes you a body subject to death. I will forgive your wickedness and will remember your sins no more. Yes, the behaviour when you do cross the line, but also under it as well, the desire that got you there. It's forgiven and forgotten by God. And folks, Jesus does that for us, rescuing us from that body that is subject to death as his blood is shed at the cross, as he seals that covenant with his blood. You look at his blood and that guarantees God's commitment to doing what he's talking about here. Yes, setting you free from the penalty of your sin, but also bringing about what the law couldn't affect in you, that change of heart. We're given his spirit so that our minds actually are set on what God's spirit desires, so that we get new desires because we've got a new heart. Look, the commandment catches you out. It brings you to the end of yourself. It alerts you to the problem. But it's pointing you to what God wants to fix deeply within you, and he does. That's the good news in all of this. This is what the commandment actually prepares us for. New heart new desires. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory wrote, uh, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And he's saying there, look, the objects of your desire are real, but they are not very big in comparison to what God is offering you. They're like kids whose tantrums and tears flow from desiring a lolly. And you think of the mess that flows from all of that in life when people follow their heart's desires about those little things. The good news is God gives you a new heart, a heart that wants for more in a good way, a heart that maybe even wants to want the right things, a heart that can be content, a heart that enjoys God for who he is, not just the good things that he gives. 
and the desires of that heart will go and do much that is good. It's kind of like I was trying to get at at the beginning with those two boys. If we can sort out their desires, well, there would be no fight over a lolly and we might just fix the world. Just imagine the kind of world that that could make. Imagine a world where you and the people around you are content. You're not striving to keep up with the Joneses. That'd be a relief, wouldn't it? Or a world where there's no lies or half-truths. A world where you can trust everyone you meet. A world where you don't have to lock your door or hide the things that are precious to you. A world where every marriage lasts a lifetime and families never break up. A world where you feel safe. A world where everyone stops one day in seven because we can. A world where everyone takes the one true God seriously and worships him his way. It kind of sounds like heaven, doesn't it? That's the world that this is angling at. And look, I know that a day is coming, a big moment when Jesus will bring that world to earth as it were when the world and the sad mess that it's in because of the sad mess of our hearts will be put right. But today, person by person, little by little, that world starts with our desires, with a new heart that God wants to give you. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for what we've learned about you and about ourselves, listening to and learning from the Ten Commandments over the last couple of months. Ten words that set us free. Like today, your word shows us that our desires, disordered by sin, create so much misery and sadness. We thank you that this commandment sets us free from any delusion about our self-righteousness and it sets us free to cry out to you for a new heart. And we thank you for Jesus, the one who rescues us from the penalty of our sin, from this body of death and who gives us your spirit and gives us new hearts. We thank you for that good news. We thank you that you change our desires as you change us deep inside. Father, please keep doing this in us, we pray. Amen.